Section four of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three by James Boswell, Section four. On Sunday, April the seventh, Easter Day. After having been at St. Paul's Cathedral, I came to Dr. Johnson, according to my usual custom. It seemed to me that there was always something peculiarly mild and placid in his manner. Upon this holy festival, the commemoration of the most joyful event in the history of our world, the resurrection of our Lord and Saviour, who, having triumphed over death and the grave, proclaimed immortality to mankind. Footnote. Johnson's entry at Easter show this year and some of the following years more peace of mind than hitherto. Thus, this Easter, he records, I had at church some radiations of comfort. When I received, some tender images struck me. I was so mollified by the concluding address to our Saviour that I could not utter it. Easter Day, 1777 I was for some time much distressed, but at last obtained, I hope, from the God of peace, more quiet than I have enjoyed for a long time. I had made no resolution, but as my heart grew light, my hopes revived and my courage increased. I went with some confidence and calmness through the prayers. End of footnote. I repeated to him an argument of a lady of my acquaintance, who maintained that her husband's having been guilty of numberless infidelities released her from conjugal obligations because they were reciprocal. Johnson this is miserable stuff, sir. To the contract of marriage, besides the man and the wife, there is a third party, society, and if it be considered as a vow, God, and therefore it cannot be dissolved by their consent alone. Laws are not made for particular cases, but for men in general. A woman may be unhappy with her husband, but she cannot be freed from him without the approbation of the civil and ecclesiastical power. A man may be unhappy because he is not so rich as another, but he is not to seize upon another's property with his own hand. Boswell But, sir, this lady does not want that the contract should be dissolved. She only argues that she may indulge herself in gallantries with equal freedom, as her husband does, provided she takes care not to introduce a spurious issue into the family. You know, sir, what Macrobius has told us of Julia. Footnote. Nonquam enim nisi navi plena tolo vectorum. End of footnote. Johnson. This lady of yours, sir, I think is very fit for brothel. 
Mr. McBean, author of the Dictionary of Ancient Geography, came in. He mentioned that he had been forty years absent from Scotland. Ah, Boswell, said Johnson, smiling. What would you give to be forty years from Scotland? I said, I should not like to be so long absent from the seat of my ancestors. This gentleman, Mrs. Williams, and Mr. Levet dined with us. Dr. Johnson made a remark, which both Mr. McBean and I thought knew. It was this, that the law against usury is for the protection of creditors as well as of the debtors, for if there were no such check, people would be apt from the temptation of great interest to lend to desperate persons, by whom they would lose their money. Accordingly, there are instances of ladies being ruined by having injudiciously sunk their fortunes for high annuities, which after a few years ceased to be paid in consequence of the ruined circumstances of the borrower. Mrs. Williams was very peevish, and I wondered at Johnson's patience with her now, as I had often done on similar occasions. The truth is that his humane consideration of the forlorn and indigent state in which this lady was left by her father induced him to treat her with the utmost tenderness, and even to be desirous of procuring her amusement, so as sometimes to incommode many of his friends by carrying her with him to their houses, where, from their manner of eating in consequence of her blindness, she could not but offend the delicacy of persons of nice sensations. After coffee, we went to afternoon service in St. Clement's Church. Observing some beggars in the street as we walked along, I said to him, I supposed there was no civilized country in the world where the misery of want in the lowest classes of the people was prevented. Johnson I believe, sir, there is not, but it is better that some should be unhappy than that none should be happy, which would be the case in a general state of equality. When the service was ended, I went home with him, and we sat quietly by ourselves. He recommended Dr. Shane's books. I said I thought Shane had been reckoned whimsical. So he was, said he, in some things, but there is no end of objections. There are few books to which some objection or other may not be made. He added, I would not have you read anything else of Shane, but his book on health and his English malady. Footnote. Shane's English malady, or a treatise of nervous diseases of all kinds, 1733. He recommended a milk, seed, and vegetable diet. By seed, he apparently meant any kind of grain. He did not take meat. He drank green tea. At one time, he weighed 32 stones. His work shows the great change in the use of fermented liquors since his time. Thus he says, For nearly twenty years I continued sober, moderate, and plain in my diet 
and in my greatest health drank not above a quart or three pints at most of wine any day for near one half of the time from thirty to sixty i scarce drank any strong liquor at all it will be found that upon the whole i drank very little above a pint of wine or at most not a quart one day with another since i was near thirty johnson a second time recommended boswell to read this book boswell was not the man to follow shane's advice of one of his works wesley says it is one of the most ingenious books which i ever saw but what epicure will ever regard it for the man talks against good eating and drinking young in his epistles to pope number two says three l's round huge shane rails at meat dr j h burton shows reason for believing that a very curious letter by hume was written to shane End of footnote. Upon the question whether a man who had been guilty of vicious actions would do well to force himself into solitude and sadness, Johnson, no, sir, unless it prevent him from being vicious again. With some people, gloomy penitence is only madness turned upside down. A man may be gloomy till, in order to be relieved from gloom, he has recourse again to criminal indulgences. Footnote. Solitude, he said one day, is dangerous to reason without being favourable to virtue. Pleasures of some sort are necessary to the intellectual as to the corporeal health, and those who resist gaiety will be likely for the most part to fall a sacrifice to appetite. For the solicitations of sense are always at hand, and a dram to a vacant and solitary person is a speedy and seducing relief. Remember, continued he, that the solitary mortal is certainly luxurious, probably superstitious, and possibly mad. End of footnote. On Wednesday, April the 10th, I dined with him at Mr. Thrale's where were Mr. Murphy and some other company. Before dinner, Dr. Johnson and I passed some time by ourselves. I was sorry to find it was now resolved that the proposed journey to Italy should not take place this year. Footnote. The day before he wrote to Mrs. Thrale, Mr. Thrale's alteration of purpose is not weakness of resolution, it is a wise man's compliance with the change of things, and with the new duties which the change produces. Whoever expects me to be angry will be disappointed. I do not even grieve at the effect. I grieve only at the cause. Mrs. Thrale on May the 3rd wrote, Baretti said you would be very angry because this dreadful event made us put off our Italian journey. But I knew you better. Who knows even now that tis deferred for ever? Mr. Thrale says he shall not die in peace without seeing Rome, and I am sure he will go nowhere that he can help without you. End of footnote. He said, I am disappointed, to be sure, but it is not a great disappointment. 
I wondered to see him bear with a philosophical calmness what would have made most people peevish and fretful. I perceived, however, that he had so warmly cherished the hope of enjoying classical scenes that he could not easily part with the scheme, for he said, I shall probably contrive to get to Italy some other way, but I won't mention it to Mr. and Mrs. Thrale, as it might vex them. I suggested that going to Italy might have done Mr. and Mrs. Thrale good. Johnson. I rather believe not, sir. While grief is fresh, every attempt to divert only irritates. You must wait till grief be digested, and then amusement will dissipate the remains of it. At dinner, Mr. Murphy entertained us with the history of Mr. Joseph Simpson, a schoolfellow of Dr. Johnson's, a barrister at law, of good parts, but who fell into a dissipated course of life, incompatible with that success in his profession which he once had, and would otherwise have deservedly maintained. Yet he still preserved a dignity in his deportment. He wrote a tragedy on the story of Leonidas, entitled The Patriot, he read it to a company of lawyers who found so many faults that he wrote it over again. So then there were two tragedies on the same subject and with the same title. Dr. Johnson told us that one of them was still in his possession. This very piece was, after his death, published by some person who had been about him. And for the sake of a little hasty profit, was fallaciously advertised so as to make it be believed to have been written by Johnson himself. I said, I disliked the custom which some people had of bringing their children into company, because it in a manner forced us to pay foolish compliments to please their parents. Footnote. See post July the 22nd, 1777. Note where Boswell complains of children being suffered to poison the moments of festivity. End of footnote. You are right, sir, we may be excused for not caring much about other people's children, for there are many who care very little about their own children. It may be observed that men who from being engaged in business or from their course of life in whatever way seldom see their children, do not care much about them. I myself should not have had much fondness for a child of my own. Footnote. Boswell, post under March the 30th, 1783, says, Johnson discovered a love of little children upon all occasions. End of footnote. Mrs. Thrale. Nay, sir, how can you talk so? Johnson. At least I never wished to have a child. Mr. Murphy mentioned Dr. Johnson's having a design to publish an edition of Cowley. Johnson said he did not know, but he should, and he expressed his disapprobation of Dr. Hurd for having published a mutilated edition under the title of Select Works of Abraham Cowley. Footnote. Johnson at a later period thought otherwise. End of footnote. Mr. Murphy thought it a bad precedent, observing that any author might be used in the same manner, 
and that it was pleasing to see the variety of an author's compositions at different periods. We talked of Flatman's poems, and Mrs. Thrale observed that Pope had partly borrowed from him the dying Christian to his soul. Footnote. Pope borrowed from the following lines. When on my sickbed I languish, full of sorrow, full of anguish, fainting, gasping, trembling, crying, panting, groaning, speechless, dying, methinks I hear some gentle spirit say, Be not fearful, come away. End of footnote. Johnson repeated Rochester's verses upon Flatman, which I think by much too severe. Footnote. In Rochester's allusion to the tenth satire of the first book of Horace. End of footnote. Nor that slow drudge in swift Pindaric strains, Flatman, who Cowley imitates with pains, and rides a jaded muse, whipped with loose reins. I like to recollect all the passages that I heard Johnson repeat. It stamps a value on them. He told us that the book entitled The Lives of the Poets by Mr. Sibber was entirely compiled by Mr. Shields, a Scotchman, one of his amanuenses. The bookseller said he gave Theophilus Sibber, who was then in prison ten guineas, to allow Mr. Sibber to be put upon the title page as the author. By this a double imposition was intended in the first place that it was the work of a Sibber at all, in the second place that it was the work of old Sibber. Footnote. In the monthly review for May, 1792, there is such a correction of the above passage, as I should think myself very culpable not to subjoin. This account is very inaccurate. The following statement of facts we know to be true, in every material circumstance. Shields was the principal collector and digester of the materials for the work, but as he was very raw in authorship, an indifferent writer in prose, and his language full of Scotticisms, Sibber, who was a clever, lively fellow, and then soliciting employment among the booksellers, was engaged to correct the style and diction of the whole work then intended to make only four volumes, with power to alter, expunge, or add as he liked. He was also to supply notes, occasionally, especially concerning those dramatic poets with whom he had been chiefly conversant. He also engaged to write several of the lives, which, as we are told, he accordingly performed. He was farther useful in striking out the Jacobitical and Tory sentiments, which Shields had industriously interspersed wherever he could bring them in, and as the success of the work appeared after all very doubtful, he was content with twenty-one pounds for his labour, beside a few set of the books to disperse among his friends. Shields had nearly seventy pounds beside the advantage of many of the best lives in the work being communicated by friends to the undertaking and for which mr shields 
had the same consideration as for the rest being paid by the sheet for the whole he was however so angry with his whiggish supervisor he like his father being a violent stickler for the political principles which prevailed in the reign of george the second for so unmercifully mutilating his copy and scouting his politics that he wrote Sibber a challenge, but was prevented from sending it by the publisher, who fairly laughed him out of his fury. The proprietors, too, were discontented, in the end on account of Mr. Sibber's unexpected industry, for his corrections and alterations in the proof-sheets were so numerous and considerable that the printer made for them a grievous addition to his bill and in fine all parties were dissatisfied. On the whole, the work was productive of no profit to the undertakers, who had agreed, in case of success, to make Sibber a present of some addition to the twenty guineas which he had received, and for which his receipt is now in the bookseller's hands. We are farther assured that he actually obtained an additional sum when he, soon after, in the year 1758, unfortunately embarked for dublin on an engagement for one of the theatres there but the ship was cast away and every person on board perished there were about sixty passengers among whom was the earl of drogheda with many other persons of consequence and property as to the alleged design of making the compliment pass for the work of old mr Sibber, the charges seem to have been founded on a somewhat uncharitable construction. We are assured that the thought was not harboured by some of the proprietors who are still living, and we hope that it did not occur to the first designer of the work, who was also the printer of it, and who bore a respectable character. We have been induced to enter thus circumstantially into the foregoing detail of facts relating to the lives of the poets, compiled by Messrs. Sibber and Shields, from a sincere regard to that sacred principle of truth, to which Dr. Johnson so rigidly adhered, according to the best of his knowledge, and which we believe no consideration would have prevailed on him to violate in regard to the matter which we now dismiss he had no doubt been misled by partial and wrong information shields was the doctor's amanuensis he had quarrelled with sibber it is natural to suppose that he told his story in his own way and it is certain that he was not a very sturdy moralist the quotation is from johnson's work one x one hundred and sixteen this explanation appears to me very satisfactory it is however to be observed that the story told by johnson does not rest solely upon my record of his conversation for he himself has published it in his life of hammond where he says the manuscript of shields is now in my possession very probably he had trusted to shields word and never looked at it so as to compare it with the lives of the poets as published under mr sibber's name what became of that manuscript i know not i should have liked much to examine it i suppose it was thrown into the fire in that impetuous combustion of papers 
which Johnson, I think, rashly executed when moribundus. Boswell, Mr. Croker, quoting a letter by Griffiths, the publisher, says, The question is now decided by this letter in opposition to Dr. Johnson's assertion. The evidence of such an infamous fellow as Griffiths is worthless. For his character, see Forster's Goldsmith, 1, 161. As the monthly review was his property, the passage quoted by Boswell was, no doubt, written by his direction. The Israeli says that Oldies made annotations on a copy of Langbane's dramatic poets. This Langbane, with additions by Coxeter, was bought by Theophilus Sibber on the strength of these notes he prefixed his name to the first collections of the lives of our poets, written chiefly by Shields. End of footnote. Mr. Murphy said that the memoirs of Gray's life set him much higher in his estimation than his poems did. For you there saw a man constantly at work in literature. Johnson acquiesced in this, but depreciated the book. I thought very unreasonably, for he said, I forced myself to read it only because it was a common topic of conversation. I found it mighty dull, and as to the style, it is fit for the second table. Footnote. Mason's Memoirs of Gray's Life was published in 1775. Johnson, in his Life of Gray, praises Gray's portion of the book. They, Gray and Horace Walpole, wandered through France into Italy, and Gray's letters contain a very pleasing account of many parts of their journey. The style of Madame de Sévigne, wrote Mackintosh, is evidently copied, not only by her worshipper Walpole, but even by Gray, notwithstanding the extraordinary merits of his matter, he has the double stiffness of an imitator and of a college recluse. End of footnote. Why he thought so, I was at a loss to conceive. He now gave it as his opinion that Akenside was a superior poet both to Gray and Mason. Talking of the reviews, Johnson said, I think them very impartial. I do not know an instance of partiality. Footnote. This impartiality is very unlikely. In 1757, Griffiths, the owner of the Monthly, aiming a blow at Smollett, the editor of the Critical, said that the Monthly Review was not written by physicians without practice, authors without learning, men without decency, gentlemen without manners, and critics without judgment. Smollett retorted, the critical review is not written by a parcel of obscure hirelings under the restraint of a bookseller and his wife, who presume to revise, alter, and amend the articles occasionally. The principal writers in the critical review are unconnected with booksellers, unawed by old women, and independent of each other. A fourth share in the monthly review was sold in 1761, for seven hundred and fifty-five pounds. End of footnote. He mentioned what had passed upon the subject of the monthly and critical reviews in the conversation with which His Majesty had honoured him. 
he expatiated a little more on them this evening the monthly reviewers said he are not deists but they are christians with as little christianity as may be and are for pulling down all establishments the critical reviewers are for supporting the constitution both in church and state footnote horace walpole writes the scope of the critical review was to decry any work that appeared favourable to the principles of the revolution End of footnote. the critical reviewers i believe often review without reading the books through but lay hold of a topic and write chiefly from their own minds the monthly reviewers are duller men and are glad to read the books through he talked of lord littleton's extreme anxiety as an author observing that he was thirty years in preparing his history and that he employed a man to point it for him as if laughing another man could point his sense better than himself footnote the story of this publication is remarkable the whole book was printed twice over a great part of it three times and many sheets four or five times the booksellers paid for the first impression but the charges and repeated operations of the press were at the expense of the author whose ambitious accuracy is known to have cost him at least a thousand pounds he began to print in seventeen fifty five three volumes appeared in seventeen sixty four and the conclusion in seventeen seventy one andrew reed undertook to persuade littleton as he had persuaded himself that he was a master of the secret of punctuation and as fear begets credulity he was employed i know not at what price to point the pages of henry the second when time brought the history to a third edition reed was either dead or discarded and the superintendence of typography and punctuation was committed to a man originally a comb-maker but then known by the style of doctor something uncommon was probably expected and something uncommon was at last done for to the doctor's edition is appended what the world had hardly seen before a list of errors in nineteen pages in the first edition of the lives of the poets the doctor is called dr sanders so ambitious was lord littleton's accuracy that in the second edition he gave a list of false stops which hurt the sense for instance the punctuation of the following paragraph the words of abbot suger in his life of louis de grosse concerning this prince are very remarkable he thus corrects after prince a comma is wanting End of footnote. End of section 4.